Good morning. There are many things that we have had addressed here this morning that we uh, need to remember as a church family, both praise and uh, as means of request, and so let's remember to do that this morning. So would you bow with me and let's spend the next few moments together in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you today and we first want to simply say we love you. We love you, Lord, because you first loved us. We love you, Lord, because you were willing to send your Son into this world to die in our place. And so you demonstrated your great love towards us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And for this, Lord, we give you our humble thanks today. Thank you, Lord. And today, Lord, as we acknowledge what you have done for us, we know that in return you simply ask that, as we just saw in this video, that we trust you completely, that we put our faith in you wholeheartedly, and that when you ask us to step out and do something that seems impossible, that when we do it in faith, you will respond and you will be there. And so, Father, we ask simply, humbly, that you would help us in this, that we would be obedient. When you ask us to do something, even something extremely hard, Give us the strength, Lord, to take that step, even as Abraham did. And Lord, for those who are right now facing circumstances that are beyond their ability to handle, beyond their strength, Lord, we just ask, would you be there with them in a very real and near way? Lord, we think of those who have recently lost loved ones. We pray for Eva. We pray for the Weeb family. Lord, as they have laid their father, their husband, their grandpa, and a good friend to rest, we pray, Lord, that you would be their rest in this time of loss. Would you comfort them? We pray for others, Lord, in our church family who have also lost loved ones in these past weeks, and we ask that you would continue to comfort them as well. We pray, Lord, for those who are having to deal with illness, and we think especially of Ken and Brenda Clausen, and we think of their families, Lord, and we think of this difficult time, these trials that they have had to endure in these past weeks. And first of all, we want to thank you, Lord, for the ways in which you have already answered prayer. And we thank you for the peace that you have provided and the strength. And now, Lord, we ask as well that your perfect will would be accomplished in this situation, that you would be glorified out of it. Lord, whether that is through complete healing, which is, of course, what we ask for, Lord. As you have told us to do, we ask for healing. But, Lord, in whatever your perfect will is, we simply agree with it and we say, Amen. May your will be done. And so we pray, Lord, that you would be glorified. We pray as well for others in our church family struggling with illness, those that we know of and those that we don't. We think of those in Bayside. Uh, we think of those, Lord, um, who once again have received uh, news that is troubling. And we think of Dalla Jansen. Lord, as once again she is facing the prospect of more chemotherapy and treatment, and we pray, Lord, that you would continue to uphold her in this, and we pray that you would walk with both Henry and Della. We thank you, Lord, for your spirit with them and the way you keep her encouraged, and thank you for that. Be with her. And Lord, we also thank you for new life, and thank you for a new member of this church family, and we thank you for the new baby girl that has been born for Jamie and Amy, and we just give you praise, Lord. You are good, and your blessings uh, we give you thanks for. So bless that little life, Lord, and bless Jamie and Amy as they seek to raise her to know and to love you. And we thank you, Lord, 
once again, for all of the children in this church family. May we as parents, as teachers, as grandparents, as friends, Lord, do our part in raising them to know and to love you as well. So help us in this, Lord, and bless these children in our care. Thank you so much for them. And now, Lord, as we come each of you, uh, each of us to you in our own way today, we each of us carry our own burdens. Whether it's just something that came up recently, Lord, a concern, an anxiety, a worry, Lord, um, something with work or family, we just now bring it to you, Lord, and we simply lay it down at your feet and we say, Lord, here's our burden. We give it to you. We cast it upon you. You have told us to bring them to you, and here we are holding them up to you, Lord. Please lift them from us. And even as we come to your word, we pray that you would encourage us, Lord, by your word here today. So bless each one of us by your spirit. May we have ears to hear what you have for us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, many years ago, a young lawyer in the Midwest of the United States had suffered such a severe depression that his friends had come to the conclusion that it was best to keep all knives and sharp objects out of his reach. In fact, he was so down and so depressed that they feared that he was going to take his own life. And this, this lawyer was so distraught at his situation that he questioned his life's calling and he questioned the prudence of even attempting to follow through on life for another day. And during this time, he wrote down in his journal... I am now the most miserable man living. Whether I shall ever be better, I cannot tell. I awfully forebode, I shall not. That young man's name was Abraham Lincoln. You may recognize that name from history. As he didn't stay in that place, he went on to be one of the single most influential men in the history of the nation of the United States of America. But like Lincoln... You may have hit a point in your life where you could identify with his statement, I am now the most miserable man living, or woman living. Have you ever been at a point in your life like that where you felt like you were just so miserable that you might be, in fact, the most miserable person alive? Well, if you're not sure, maybe ask your spouse or someone close to you. They might have had a different opinion than yourself. There are times in life where we face circumstances where, for whatever reason, we're down. We're so down, we're miserable. We're depressed. Perhaps you've been at a point in your life where you've been so in a place of darkness that you despaired even of life, as Abraham Lincoln did at his lowest point. You know, there's something in those times of darkness and despair that is suffocating. There is something about those times that is overwhelming. There is something in those times that is so thickly, just, just like this dark blanket upon us, that if, if the sun was shining, if, if everything else in the world was 100% right, we are so blinded by our own despair, we just can't see it. It could be right there in front of us, and we would miss it entirely when we're in that sort of a place. And the reality is that moments such as this, to varying degrees, happens to absolutely everyone. Because no matter what our individual temperaments are, God has created each of us as emotional beings. We're not to be guided by our emotions completely. However, we're not to be devoid of emotion either. Because God has created us with emotions, with feelings. And so as emotional beings, we have this capacity 
of feeling joy, of feeling love, of feeling happiness, of feeling peace. But we're also capable of the opposite. We're capable of feeling discouragement, depression, and outright despair. And so this morning, I want to show you from God's Word that feeling negative emotions is not the problem. It's what we do with those negative emotions that makes all the difference. So I want you to turn with me again to 1 Samuel chapter 30, the passage that Barb did an excellent job reading for us this morning. She nailed all of the names perfectly. Thank you, Barb. Turn there with me this morning, 1 Samuel chapter 30, verses 1 to 6. And as you're turning there, let me set the stage for you. The story taken in isolation just seems like another one of those Old Testament stories of warfare and killing and all sorts of things going on. But the context is actually quite intricate. If you're familiar at all with David's story, you know that there was a point in his life before he was King David where he was renegade David, where he was out with his band of men in the wilderness running for his life as renegades, as fugitives from the law with King Saul pursuing him, wanting to kill him. And so here he is in this period of his life, the renegade on the run from his own government, his own king, trying to kill him. And he's managed to elude Saul in the wilderness by this point twice. And in 1 Samuel chapter 27, verse 1, David finally says to himself, listen to this, One of these days I will be destroyed by the hand of Saul. The best thing that I can do is to escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will give up searching for me anywhere in Israel, and I will slip out of his hand. Now, if you know anything about the Old Testament and this period of history, and if you know anything about David, you know that the Philistines were the sworn enemies of Israel. In fact, what is David most famous for? Killing this giant named Goliath who was a Philistine. So now, David is in a situation in his life where basically he's defecting. This would be like going back to the Cold War era when, when people between the, the, the communists, you know, the Soviet uh, side of things and, and the, the West and the American side of things, it would be like someone defecting from one side to the other, from one sworn enemy and going crossing lines to the other camp. This is a big deal. But David's in a position in his life where he's been running from Saul for so long, he's just had it. He's fed up with trying to persuade his king that he's not actually a rebel, even though twice he could have killed him and he chose not to do so. So he actually defects and he goes over to the Philistines and he becomes a mercenary and his men fighting on their behalf. Now, at face value, I think you would agree with me that this doesn't strike us as something that David wanted to do. David didn't want to defect. In fact, the text is quite clear that David is simply trying to make the best of a really tough situation. Now, before we go too far here in saying, I can identify with David. Yeah, I can really empathize with his situation. Let's not, let's not be too hasty in that. Because you see, though we can probably identify with David up to a certain point where we've had some tough situations we've had to face. It's maybe some tough you know, work-related situations where you weren't sure if you could stay working for a certain employer and you had to go somewhere else or, or different situations where maybe relationally you can identify, I'm pretty sure that's as far as any one of us can go. Because I don't know about you, but I've never been forced to run for my life with the Prime Minister 
using the armed forces to hunt me down to kill me. And I'm pretty sure that would also apply to everyone here today. At least I hope so, okay? (laughs) I hope no one's on the run from our Prime Minister today. You know, we just can't really fathom a situation like that, where our king, our leader, is using all of his military might to hunt us down for one purpose, and that is to put us to death. So, here we see David in a situation that's already stretching our ability to even go there of how difficult that must have been, defecting over to their sworn enemies. But as hard as things were in that moment, things are about to get worse. One day, the Philistine leaders get together and they decide that they're going to go out and make war against Israel and Judah. And so, they're suspicious of David and his men. Why? Well, it makes sense. They knew about David's history. They knew that he had fought for Saul. They didn't trust him and his men to go with them into battle against their own people. They said, eh, this is a little too on the gray area. What if they turn against us? So, they send them home. They send them back to their village of Ziklag. So, on the way back, it's a three-day journey. They come up upon their hometown. To their horror, they discover a situation that is every man's worst nightmare. There's smoke in the horizon. And as they come closer, they find out it's true. Their town, that has every last one of their families in it, has been raided. It has been burned to the ground, and their families are gone. They have been taken hostage and led who knows where. Vanished, right out of thin air. They're gone. Now, I want you to just pause and consider this for a moment. How must have these men felt to come upon a situation like that. Take into consideration that David and his men are already tired and hungry. After a difficult three-day journey, they had to go 100 kilometers walking through wilderness. There's no roads back then, no superhighways. They traveled 100 kilometers through wilderness over a three-day period. As you can imagine, they're tired. They're also lugging all of their military equipment with them. They get back, they're exhausted, they're tired, and then a scene of absolute devastation is facing them. They were expecting the welcome of home, the welcome of their wives' embrace, their, fa- their families and children running up and saying, Daddy, I missed you. They were expecting a good home-cooked meal and their own pillows to rest their heads on that night. That's what they were looking forward to. And instead, they are faced with a shocking scene of emptiness, desolation, and loss. Man, I don't know about you, But for me, as I think of how I would respond to that situation, my home destroyed, my wife and children kidnapped, not knowing if they are dead or alive or worse, what would I do? I think my response would be a lot like we read in chapter 30, verse 4. Listen to this. Then David and the men with him lifted up their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. They wept until they had no more strength left to weep. There was not a tear left in their bodies. Can you picture this? These aren't sissies, okay? These are hardened men. These are warriors who have been in countless battles. These are the toughest men you can imagine. If you think of all of the action heroes and the toughest men you can think of from Hollywood or elsewhere, these are those men times a hundred. 
These are the toughest men you could ever imagine. And they are so broken, so distraught, that they weep until they have no tears left to shed. Can you imagine this scene? These men so broken, so distraught, they're not even sure what they're going to do. It's safe to say that this may have been perhaps the darkest day of David's life. David faced a lot of dark times in his life, but none such as this. On a day like that, it's hard to love life. It's hard to hold on to life and say, yeah, there's hope for the future. These strong men, these hardened soldiers, are so broken up, they don't know what to do. And so they even begin to turn on David. Perhaps you've had days where the sun refused to shine. A day where you were so broken up over a situation that you cried and cried and then you stopped and then you cried and cried some more until you finally felt like, I got, no, I got no tears left to give. And then a little while later you find out there are some more tears. And it's so numbing, it's so just overwhelming. You just don't see a way out. It feels like you're drowning and there's no life preserver. Have you ever had a day like that? Your, your heart's just aching so violently. You feel like it's going to burst. Maybe a day where you thought, this is it. My life is over. I can't face another day. Some of you have experienced such days. David was experiencing such a day. But even though it doesn't seem possible, even though it seems like things couldn't possibly get any worse, they do. Pick up the story in verse 6. David was greatly distressed for, listen to this, the men spoke of stoning him because the souls of them all were bitterly grieved, each man for his sons and daughters. If you think things are bad, things are getting worse. Now David's own men, the men who he's led for years, the men who he's commanded brilliantly in the field of battle, now turn against him. They want to blame someone. In their bitterness, they turn on their leader. They need an outlet for their emotions. They're so torn up inside and they say, it's David's fault. Let's kill him. Let's stone him to death. So now David has got to deal with his own grief. Remember, his wives and his children are gone and now his men are going to turn on him. Perhaps the most difficult situation that we could ever come up with. Here he is, away from his real home, chased by a mentally ill king, living like a vagabond, forced to side with the enemy. Then his own family is kidnapped, and now his own men are pinning the blame on him and wanting to stone him to death. Are you beginning to sense the desperation of this situation? Uh, Some of you may have come here this morning, and you're feeling a little sorry for yourself. (laughs) You know, we tend to do that from time to time. Maybe some of you came here this morning and you had some inner complaints. You know, you're like, man, life's been tough this last week. I had this happen and this happen. Are you beginning to get a little better perspective right now of how tough life can really get? Are you sensing David's despair in this situation? One reason I want you to get a sense of this is I want you to know that you are not alone when you feel desperate. When you, feel, when you feel that, that inner despair. This was absolute rock bottom for David. I can't fathom a way that it could have gotten worse. And most people would have been totally overwhelmed by these events. Most would have just thrown in the towel. But here in scripture, we see one of the most dramatic 180 degree turns anywhere of any example we can find. And it happens in the second half of verse 6. Look at this. 
Just when it says David's men are thinking of stoning him, the next line says this, But David encouraged and strengthened himself in the Lord his God. That's it. That's all it says. It doesn't tell us how he did that. It just says, David encouraged and strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And as incredible as it seems to us that someone could turn themselves around that quickly, even in the darkest days of life, there is hope in God. There is a source of encouragement. You don't have to, you don't have to believe what the circumstances are telling you. You don't have to give in to how dark it seems when you can instead believe that God is going to work a way for you in this. He's going to, he's going to work it out somehow, some way. You can't see it. You don't know how he could possibly come up with a way out of this. But when we come to God in faith, he can do it. And so it says that David became so encouraged and so strengthened in the Lord that somehow he rallies his troops... He goes after the Amalekites. He whips them soundly in battle. A day-long battle. He fights them from dawn till the dusk of the next day. And it says he recovered everything and everyone safe and sound. Not a single wife or child had been lost. What a turnaround. Incredible to go from rock bottom to victorious in that short a span of time. It's one of the most dramatic instances of personal turnaround anywhere in Scripture. And the word of God gives us the key insight to how this is possible. The first thing we see is that David encouraged and strengthened himself in the Lord his God. I want you to see the word strengthened himself. Incredible. He strengthened himself. He didn't rely on anyone else to do it for him. How often aren't we in a tough spot and we're just begging for anyone to come along and help us out? We're just begging for someone else to come along and encourage us, to say something good to us that's going to pump us up. And yeah, there are times when we need that. But what happens when everyone else is talking about stoning you to death? There's no one to come along and encourage you. If you're not going to make the choice for yourself, no one will make it for you. If you choose to stay in the point of despair, that's where you're going to stay. You have to want to get out of there. You have to choose for yourself to encourage yourself in the Lord. What a decision that David made in that moment. Everyone else has turned against him. There's no one in his corner. Just himself and his Lord. And he makes the decision to turn his emotions around. He chooses to encourage himself in the Lord. That's the first thing we see from his example. The second thing we see from his example is that we worship. David is well known and most famous for being a man of warfare. His legendary entry into armed combat takes place against Goliath. And here, after that, we know how the the women sang the songs about Saul has killed his thousands and David his tens of thousands. That was an exaggeration, but it proved the point that David, (laughs) he was a warrior. He was a man's man. When you went to battle, there was no one you'd rather have next to you than King David. Well, he wasn't king at the time. David could handle himself. David could take on the enemy, whether it was with his men or alone, and he would come out on top. He was a man of battle, a man of bloodshed. But don't forget that before David was a warrior, he was a worshiper. Because while shepherding the flocks, he played his harp and he wrote songs of praise to God. 
And here in our text today, David didn't just get angry and say, I'm a warrior, I'm angry, I'm hurt, I'm going to go off and I'm going to kill those Amalekites. I'm going to kill them, I'm going to kill them to the last man. He could have gone off in a rage, just going with the, the default setting of I'm a warrior. But he doesn't. Instead, he goes to his default setting of being a worshiper. Rather than going off first, going off half-cocked with his sword and just looking to kill everybody, he goes first to God and he says, I'm going to acknowledge you, God. I'm going to worship you for who you are. Even in my time of trouble, even in my despair, I'm going to worship you. You see, my friends, what we tend to do when we face a tough time is we tend to race off ahead of God. We grab our sword and we head off to battle rather than stopping in first with our Lord and saying, God, I worship you. I don't get this situation. I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm going to worship you first. I'm going to seek your face, and then I'm going to see what you tell me to do. And too often, we race ahead of God. We grab our sword and run into battle, but we don't know what God wants us to do. We haven't gone to God first. And so here we see, before he's a warrior, David is a worshiper. You see, when we take time to be before God in worship, both in prayer and in praise and in silent adoration. It realigns our shaking hearts and emotions to the reality that our lives are not to be ruled by our circumstances, but by God. Is your life being ruled by your circumstances or by God? Who dictates the terms of your life? Which ones are you looking at? Which ones are you listening to? Which ones are dictating your emotional state? Are you looking at God or are you looking at your circumstances? You see, your struggles are not the center of your life. He is. And when we worship him, even in our trials, we soon discover that though we may be overwhelmed, he isn't. Though we may be utterly powerless to do anything about our situation, he certainly is not. He is powerful. He is mighty to save. So let me ask you today, are you a worshiper Or a worrier? Which one? Because if someone would describe us as more of a worrier than a worshiper, we'd better spend more time in worship. Because when we worship God, when we focus on who He is and what He is capable of doing, we find Him realigning our hearts, realigning our anxious thoughts and our worries on Him, and He takes them from us because He reminds us of the central truth of our lives is that He is greater than our circumstances. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Is anything too hard for God? It may look impossible to you, but to him, it is nothing. It is easy. Focus on him and worship, and everything else will be realigned. The the third practical pointer for encouraging ourselves in God, after we've looked at these first ones, we have to make the choice. Then we have to choose to worship. And thirdly, we have to seek God's direction. After David spends this time with God, I want you to listen to what he does next that brings this encouragement into his life. David says to Abathar, this is verse 7, David says to Abathar the priest, bring me the ephod. And then David asked the Lord, should I chase the people who took our families? Will I catch them? And the Lord answered, chase them. You will catch them and you will succeed in saving your families. Now, if you're wondering what the ephod is, the priest wore the ephod. It was like a holy vest that he wore. It had, it had 12 gemstones on it, representing each of the 12 tribes of Israel. 
And the priest would wear the ephod to symbolize the presence of God. And so by asking for it, David was symbolically going into the presence of God. And in some way that we have lost the understanding of, the priest would use the ephod to determine God's will. It would be like going into God's presence and laying down our our prayers and petitions before him. And using the ephod, they would discern God's answer. Now, as New Testament believers, I think we have no idea of just how blessed we are that we don't have to go to an ephod. We don't have to go to the temple to ask God what to do. The Holy Spirit lives within us. And so anywhere, anytime, we can seek God's face and we can ask for his direction. David doesn't have that in the Old Testament era. He has to go to the presence of God and he goes. But so too, we need to find that time, make that time, that even though God is with us, to set aside all those distractions, all of the buzzing noises, all of those turmoiling, those spinning emotions inside of us, and we need to just say, God, what do you want me to do now? And just be quiet enough and still enough to listen to his response. What do you want me to do next? David didn't race off ahead of God. He didn't chase down the Amalekites before seeking God's face. He asked God, what do I do next? And God tells him the answer. And so having heard God's response, it is only then that David acts. You see, sometimes we go through these steps and we, we're, we're in a tough spot. And so we choose to, to get out of it. We choose to turn to the Lord. And so we get the worship part right. But we forget to ask God for direction. But of paramount importance... We need to know the direction. Because if we just go racing off in any old direction, we could choose the wrong one quite easily. In fact, chances are we will. But you see, when we see what God says, then we're not being dictated by human emotion, not by what we want to do, not by what others want us to do. We go by what He says. And look at where the Bible says our joy comes from, even in times of stress. You don't have to turn there, but Psalm 119, verse 43, pardon me, verse 143, is this great verse. It says, as pressure and stress bear down on me, I find joy in your commands. As pressure and stress bear down on me. Think of a press just squeezing you down. And you're feeling like you you got nowhere to go. Where did the psalmist find joy? In God's commands. You see, your joy in times of trouble is not going to come from the conclusions that you draw on your own. It's going to come from the commands, the instructions that God gives to you. You need to find out what God is telling you to do, and then you do it. Just two chapters of Scripture previous from this story, we find that King Saul handles his trials in exactly the opposite way to David. King Saul was getting ready to go to war, and the prophet Samuel, who had guided him so many times before, has recently died. And so do you know what Saul does? He received advice by consulting with a psychic or a medium. You see, rather than going to God in prayer himself, he doesn't know what to do. He doesn't know what direction to go, so he turns to the occult. He turns to a a witch known as the Witch of Endor. And he wants her to conjure up the dead spirit of Abraham or Samuel or whoever to tell him what to do. Incredible. We see this in 1 Samuel chapter 28, verse 7. And here we see that King Saul is going against the own laws that he instituted for the rest of the nation. That witches and mediums were to be, were to be completely abolished. 
And he goes against his own law, he disguises himself, he goes to this witch for direction. How sad, isn't it, that Saul was so far from God that the only way he had to go, that in his own mind that he had to go, was to go to a witch. Incredible. But how often aren't we like Saul? Yeah, sure, maybe we're not going to mediums or witches or, or psychics. That's not what I'm saying. At least I hope that that's not where we're going. I hope we know better than that. We don't want to mess with that stuff. But when facing dark times, like Saul, we tend to seek the advice of others before going straight to the source of all wisdom, God himself. Some will even go to sources like Oprah and Dr. Phil, and they'll read self-help books, but not read God's word or seek godly counsel from mature Christians. Now, of course, there is a time and a place for seeking help and counsel from others, but we need to seek those second and God first. We need to go to God's word. We need to go to him in prayer. You know, there are only two types of advice in this world. Godly advice and ungodly advice. When you really break it down, there's only two kinds. We must opt for the godly advice if we want to stay encouraged, if we want to be going in the right direction. So we must seek God's face for direction. And fourth and finally, to stay encouraged in the Lord, we must treat others with grace. Now this may seem kind of out there. What does this have to do with encouraging ourselves in the Lord? But hear me out. What does it have to do with encouraging ourselves in the Lord when we treat others with grace? Well, let's see about our own emotions. When situations are getting a little intense, when life gets a little hairy, we're tempted to do exactly what David's troops did. We're tempted to take it out on someone else. Right? If you're hurt, chances are you're in a good position to hurt someone else. Misery loves company. When you're in the pit of despair, and instead of spending time with God and asking Him what to do, what do hurt people tend to do? Hurt people hurt people. That's the way it always goes. When we're at our worst, emotionally, chances are we're going to treat others the worst. And so this is something that we must guard against. You know what the most dangerous animal in the world is? Any takers at this one? The most dangerous animal in the world is an injured animal. Some of you have experienced that. An animal that is otherwise completely safe and friendly when it's injured, watch out. I still remember the day when our German shepherd came into the yard with a mouth full of porcupine quills. And I love this dog. This, you know, this dog wouldn't hurt anyone. And I remember wanting so badly to help our dog. He had these porcupine quills in his mouth. And I went up towards him and he was whimpering. And I remember my uncle was on the yard and he said, Danny, stay back. And I said, why? And he says, she might not mean to, but she could hurt you. My uncle knew that an injured animal is a dangerous animal. Be cautious. It's the same way with us as people. When we're injured, we can be at our most dangerous. And so David is injured. He's hurt. He's at rock bottom. His men are threatening mutiny. They're threatening to stone him to death. It'd be very easy for him to lash out, to defend himself, to say, how dare you? I've been leading you all these years. Now you're going to turn against me. He could have done any number of things. But let's look at what he does. First, he rallies his men. He doesn't speak a word back against them. 
he rallies his men, and they head out to hunt down the Amalekites. On the way, 200 of his men are so tired from their journey, so emotionally distraught, they just can't keep going. So he says, fine, you guys stay here. The rest of us are going to carry on. He didn't browbeat them. He didn't guilt them. He just told them to stay with the stuff. And when he returned with the spoils of battle, all the other men are saying, what? These guys didn't fight. They don't get the spoils. We'll give them their wives and children. That's it. They don't get the rest of the stuff with us. But what does David say? Immediately. Immediately he says, no, this is not right. Just because they didn't have the strength to carry on, they guarded our stuff. We are dividing the spoils of war equally with them. And in fact, from that day forward, he made that an ordinance that stood into his kingship when he became king of Israel, that those who weren't in the front lines of battle would share equally in the spoils of war with those who had. What an amazing decision that he made to treat those men with grace. Can you imagine the amount of loyalty that instilled in his men? Can you imagine how those men felt that day to have their leaders say, you know what, guys, the rest of them don't want to give you a share in the battle, in the spoils of the battle, but I'm going to. And in fact, we're going to make this the law from this day forward. What, what an, just a gesture of grace that won him amazing, amazing loyalty from those men. Incredible to think what David did, even in a time where he could have vindicated himself by treating his men harshly, he chooses to treat them graciously. You see, dark days can be a real test of our character and our behavior towards others, especially those closest to us. Don't take out your anger and frustration on those near you when you are hurt. Don't do it. Treat others graciously. Bring your pain and your anger and your frustration and your despair, bring it to God. Pour them out to Him because He can handle it. And He is also able to lift you out of it. You see, David would face many more challenges in his life following this incident. But I believe that this incident defined his leadership from that day forward. That was a make or break day for David. And David sought God's face. He chose to be encouraged in the Lord. No one else was going to do it for him. But he chose that I'm not going to wallow in despair. I'm going to seek God's face. And so encouraged, he seeks God. He finds God's direction. He goes out. He he follows God's instructions to the letter. And along the way, he treats others graciously. And so he wins his leadership and the loyalty of his men, which is necessary for him to become the king only a short time later. And so we see here what could have been the undoing of David became his defining hour. And God blessed him greatly as a result of it. So may we follow David's example. When we're facing tough times, when we're facing trials and despair, don't lash out to others. Don't take it out on others. Take it to the Lord. Seek his face. Seek his direction. Worship him first in all that we do. And he will guide our paths. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much for this incredible story in your word. We thank you, God, for how even though the situation and circumstances are so far removed from us, Lord, that even there we can identify with David in facing a dark day, a trial that is beyond our ability, most of us, to even begin to understand. And yet, Lord, each one of us in our own trials and situations 
Like David, we often can't see a way out. We feel those same emotions of despair, of hopelessness, of anger. Sometimes we want to lash out to others. Sometimes we just want to curl up in a ball and just never leave our house. And Lord, on this, on this spectrum of emotions, it's so easy to get wrapped up in ourselves. It's so easy to see nothing but our own misery. And Lord, as we lose sight of you, we get more wrapped up in our own hurt and our own pain. And we know that the enemy just loves that. He loves to come into that darkness and just feed that. But Lord, may we today choose to take David's example as our own. And in our pain, in our hurt, in our despair, choose to seek your face, to bring our pain to you, and to encourage ourselves in you, our God, our strength, our defender. And as we come to you, Lord, as we lay our burdens down on you, we claim your promises that you will lift those burdens off of us. You will pick us up. You will give us a firm place to stand. And as we seek your face in direction on where to go, you will guide us. You will guide us and you will give us the strength to do what it is that you ask us to do. So help us to do this, Lord, to your glory. Build each one of us up, Lord, in our circumstances. May we not be overwhelmed by our circumstances, but may we instead, Lord, seek your face. So bless each family here. Bless each marriage, Lord. Bless each man, woman, and child in their circumstances. May they seek your face today, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.